This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. The holidays are upon us once again, and it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. I look forward to it because of the lights and decorations, Christmas movies like Elf and Christmas Vacation, and of course it's a wonderful life. But not until Christmas Eve. You're a monster if you watch it any earlier. At least that's what we believe in our house. So many things to enjoy. Time with good friends, holiday parties, and Christmas cookies. But not everything is great for everyone. This, I know. It can be stressful. You spend more money. You have to fight the crowds at the shopping malls. You sometimes spend time with annoying relatives. I mean, I get it. But I hope that this year, you will enjoy the holiday season. So in keeping with that goal, I'm going to do something a little different for this month's episodes. Don't worry, it will still be all about true crime, and I've still got some crazy stories lined up for you. But for just a couple of episodes, I'm going to keep things a little less grim. Last month's series was pretty heavy, and I think it's time for a bit of a palate cleanse. My first gift to you is I'm going to let you in on the entire series, what I'll be doing for each episode this month. That's something I never reveal ahead of time, but, well, you've all been good this year, so I'll make an exception. Our new series is The 12 Crimes of Christmas, and I'll be sharing two episodes with multiple stories. First up, I'll share with you the crazy phenomenon that happens each year when Santa Claus himself turns to crime. The second episode will cover holiday hijinks, everything from Black Friday sale stampedes to Grinchy burglars and more. Finally, I'll cover a much-requested case, the disappearance of Lacey Peterson on Christmas Eve and the subsequent arrest of her husband, Scott, for her murder. Although it's been covered a lot recently, I'll be giving a little different take on this case, namely as a response to the recent series, The Murder of Lacey Peterson on A&E. I'll also have a special guest co-host for that episode, so it will be something completely different for Once Upon a Crime. I hope you're looking forward to it as much as I am. So grab some eggnog, a plate of holiday cookies, or whatever gets you in the holiday mood, and let's get started with Chapter 1, Very Bad Santas. There is no symbol of the holiday season quite as familiar as Santa Claus. The jolly-bearded man with the snow-white hair, red suit and hat, and always wearing a big black belt and boots. We see him everywhere in the shopping malls with lines of kitties waiting to tell him their Christmas wishes, ringing bells in front of supermarkets, and at just about every holiday party you attend, someone shows up in a Santa suit to bring some holiday joy to the festivities. But every year, I hate to tell you, Santas turn bad. No one really knows how or why. Perhaps the stress of delivering all those gifts around the world caused the old man to crack. Or maybe he just had too much rum in his eggnog. All I can tell you is that over the years, there have been some very bad Santas. The worst of the worst has to be Bruce Pardo. I'll tell you a summary of this case. It's one you've probably heard before, and it's pretty brutal. I may cover the entire case in another holiday series in the future. On Christmas Eve 2008, Bruce Pardo knocked on the door of his ex-in-laws in the city of Covina, California, a suburb of Los Angeles. His divorce from his wife, Sylvia, was finalized a week before Christmas. Pardo came dressed in a Santa suit and had a gift-wrapped package in his hands. An eight-year-old relative of Sylvia Pardo's came to the door. 
He drew a weapon and fired first at the child, hitting her, and then continued firing into the home, hitting several people. He then drew from the package a homemade flamethrower, using it to set the home on fire. He then fled. Eight people were killed, including Pardo's ex-wife and her parents. Three others were severely injured. Pardo was found dead the following day of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Now, that one was pretty heavy. So let's move on to something a little more historical. Our second bad Santa is the bank robber, Marshall Ratliff. Ratliff was 24 years old in 1927 and had already been convicted of bank robbery once before. He was given a long prison sentence, but after only one year, he was pardoned by the governor. Ratliff, along with two other ex-cons, Henry Helms and Robert Hill, as well as Lewis Davis, a relative of Helms, drove into Cisco, Texas in a stolen car around noon on December 23, 1927. Ratliff, who was originally from Cisco, donned a Santa suit to pull off the robbery. He wanted to make sure he wasn't identified, and as well, he thought it would give him the element of surprise. Who would suspect Santa of robbing a bank? The gang let Ratliff off a couple of blocks from the bank, but right away, his costume began to backfire. This being only a day before children were anticipating Santa's visit to their homes to leave them presents, made several children, seeing the red-suited man strolling down the street, begin to follow him. He just continued on into the bank. Once inside, he was greeted from across the bank by the teller. Well, hello, Santa, she said. He ignored her. Approaching the teller's window, she greeted him again. He still did not respond. He was soon joined inside by his three accomplices, at which time they each drew their guns and announced that the bank was being held up. Ratliff began grabbing money from the tills and forced an employee to open the vault. A woman and her daughter walked into the bank just as the holdup was beginning. She quickly led her daughter to a side door, even while the robbers yelled at her to stop and threatened to shoot. She emerged into an alley and yelled for help, letting everyone know that the bank was being robbed. During this period of time, banks were being robbed in Texas at an alarming rate. Because of this, Texas Bankers Association had offered a $5,000 reward to anyone shooting a bank robber during a robbery. Texas justice indeed. So once the citizens heard that a bank was being robbed, they began arming themselves. Some didn't even bother to take the extra time to go home and retrieve their weapons, but simply ran to the local hardware store for firearms. Inside the bank, Ratliff had entered the vault and stuffed a sack with cash. Hill then fired a shot through the front window of the bank. Whether he'd seen someone or it was some sort of signal, no one was quite sure. Anyhow, a shot was fired back into the bank. Hill then fired several more shots into the ceiling as a warning. A barrage of gunfire now began to pepper the bank building from the armed citizens outside. The robbers rounded up all the people in the bank and led them outside, using them as shields to get to their getaway vehicle. As soon as they were outside, many scattered to safety. Some were wounded in the gunfire. Chief of Police G.E. Bedford and Deputy George Carmichael were the first law officers on the scene. While the robbers were trying to flee, a shootout began between the officers and the bank robbers. Both officers were mortally wounded. Bedford died hours later, while Carmichael succumbed to his injuries in early January. Ratliff and Davis were also injured. Two little girls, 10-year-old Emma Mae Robertson and 12-year-old Laverne Comer, were taken as hostages. As the robbers drove the car away from the bank, 
they noticed that one of their tires had been shot out. As well, the Brainiacs had not filled the tank with gas, and it was almost empty. They made it just outside of town, with the mob following a ways behind them. They then came upon a teenager. 14-year-old Woodrow Wilson Harris was driving his family's car, and they demanded that he pull over and give them the car. The boy thought quickly and got out of the car, turning it over to the bandits, but kept the keys. They transferred their weapons, money, and hostages into the new car before they realized they could not start it. Davis, by this time badly wounded, had fallen unconscious. They left him in the Harris's car and moved the hostages back to the first car. As they fled, they soon realized they had left the money, over $12,000 in cash, and $150,000 in non-negotiable securities in the other car with Davis. The mob, coming upon the car with the unconscious robber, found the cash and gave up the chase. Davis died later at a Fort Worth hospital. The rest of the gang, Ratliff, Hill, and Helms, didn't get much further in the ruined car, so they dumped it outside of town and continued on foot. They left the two little girls behind, uninjured. They were able to elude authorities until the morning, at which time they stole another car, but wrecked that one about 15 miles away outside of Putnam. They commandeered another vehicle taking the owner, Carl Wiley, hostage. After 24 hours, they gave Wiley back his car and let him go, stealing a different car before continuing on. An all-points bulletin had been put out for the wounded bandits. They had no food, the temperatures were freezing, and Ratliff was badly injured. They made it about 75 miles north, when they were ambushed by the sheriff of Young County and Texas Ranger Cy Bradford in South Bend. A firefight with the lawmen ensued, and Ratliff was hit once more. Helms and Hill were wounded, but escaped into the nearby woods. A manhunt began, and the two final men were captured as they entered Graham, about 10 miles away. They were taken into custody without further incident. Robert Hill pled guilty to armed robbery and was sentenced to 99 years. He successfully escaped from prison three times, but was captured each time. After that, he followed prison rules and was granted parole in the 1940s. He lived out his life without committing any further crimes. Henry Helms was identified as the one who had shot and killed the two lawmen. He was given the death sentence, and his sentence was carried out in the electric chair on September 6, 1929. Marshall Ratliff was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 99 years. Two months later, he was tried and also convicted for the deaths of Chief Bedford and Deputy Carmichael. He first appealed this case, saying he had not fired on the officers, but it was denied. He then launched an insanity plea. His mother even filed to have him committed as a lunatic, or that day's definition of legal insanity. The judge extradited Ratliff to be tried in Eastland County for stealing the Harris's car. Once in the jail at Eastland County, he began trying to prove to his jailers Pat Kilborn and Thomas Jones, that he was insane. He pretended to be suffering from a hysterical paralysis, requiring them to feed and bathe him and take him to the toilet. Ratliff was able to grab one of the jailer's weapons during an escape attempt in November. He shot and killed Jones and fought Kilborn before he was finally subdued by being beaten to unconsciousness. Ratliff was then returned to his cell. By that night, hearing about the escape attempt and the murder of the officer... The townspeople, over 1,000 strong, demanded for the murderer to be handed over to them. When Kilborn refused to do so, they broke into the jail and dragged Ratliff out. They tied his hands and feet and strung him up on the nearest available makeshift gallows, a nearby power pole. 
There he was hung by the neck and died. No one was ever charged with lynching Marshall Ratliff. He was buried by his family in Olivet Cemetery in Fort Worth. The Santa Claus bank robbery of 1927 is still talked about by the old-timers in Cisco. Many will say they or their relatives were there that day, and it has become local legend in the area. The First National Bank still stands in Cisco, albeit in a newer building. The bank has become somewhat of a museum to the infamous bank robbery. There is a painting of the events of that day, as well as a collection of newspaper clippings and photos of some of the people involved. In Eastland, Texas, there is a marker and a picket fence placed around an old utility pole located in back of the Majestic Theater on Mulberry Street. It is said to be the very pole where the infamous bank robber, Marshall Ratliff, was hung in 1929. It would be interesting to know, did he keep his Santa Claus suit on for the whole chase? Or did he change out of it while still in the bank? Can you imagine those poor children in that town seeing Santa shooting up the place, robbing banks, taking children hostage? It was terrible. Well, Texans don't play, I've always heard. And they had the final word, I guess. I came across several variations of our next story while researching this series, but this one, I think, was one of the most interesting. I don't know if you have traditions that include watching the same holiday movies over and over, but I do. It's one of my most favorite things about the holidays. I start by watching Planes, Trains, and Automobiles on Thanksgiving, followed by Elf and Christmas Vacation, and it continues on from there. I have stacks of holiday movies, and I seem to purchase more every year. One of the first holiday movies I remember watching repeatedly was How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the original cartoon version from 1966. It's a classic. One of my favorite scenes in that movie is when the Grinch shoves himself down the chimney in order to steal all the Christmas presents. Then, if you remember, he slithers around the floor like a snake. That always made me laugh. Well, if you can believe it, that is a strategy that more than one Grinchy thief has attempted over the years, with predictable results. The worst I heard is probably the story of a man who went missing in 1984 in Louisiana. 27 years later, in 2011, his remains were found lodged in a brick chimney at the Abbeville National Bank. The man, Joseph Schecksneider, was 26 when he disappeared. He'd served in the National Guard and was scheduled to appear in court for possession of a stolen vehicle. His family said he would sometimes just take off without telling them, even once working and traveling with the circus. The bank's second floor had been used for storage for many years and was being renovated when the discovery of a skeleton was found in the chimney. It was lodged just above the fireplace in the narrow flue. Gloves were found wedged in with the body. Authorities stopped short of accusing the man of attempting a burglary. DNA testing identified the man as a nearby resident who had gone missing and his family was notified. They were devastated at learning the news, but also said they felt a sense of closure at finding out what had happened to him. Okay, that one was a bit grim, but here's one that's a bit more fun, and a few other stories I think will give you a chuckle. A man was stuck for three hours in a Seward Park, Washington home's chimney after he got stuck trying to burglarize the house by way of the chimney. 23-year-old Sean Chanel was quickly dubbed by the media as the Santa Claus burglar. Jonathan Tran, the home's owner, received a call while playing golf in February of 2010. Police then reported that a man was stuck in his chimney. I just started laughing, Tran said. It's unfortunate, but that's karma. 
the would-be burglar, Chanel, was suspected in a number of other break-ins in the Seattle area. The homes that were robbed had showed no signs of forced entry, and it was suspected the thief may have gained access by the chimney. At the Seward Park home, Chanel had become stuck in the chimney and tried to free himself for three hours before calling for help. A neighbor heard him and called the police. When they arrived, they found him wedged feet down and most of the way down into the two-story chimney. They quickly realized that there was no way to move him either up or down the chimney to get him out safely. They called for a jackhammer and began removing bricks carefully to free him. Once he was freed, it was discovered that he was naked. Why he was unclothed was never explained. As rescuers worked to free him, a small crowd gathered in front of the home on the 7700 block of Seward Park Avenue South. Seven fire trucks, six police cars, and an ambulance, as well as scores of neighbors, watched the bizarre scene. Some joked, was it Santa Claus an 89-year-old neighbor teased? Maybe he was practicing. Guess he needs to lose a few pounds before Christmas, another laughed. One officer commented, this is my 42nd year as a cop. I ain't never seen this. Chanel was taken for medical treatment to Harborview Medical Center and then booked into King County Jail on suspicion of burglary. The following August, when he went before a judge, he tried to deny he was attempting to rob the house. His friend had thrown his backpack into the opening of the chimney, he said. He was simply trying to retrieve it. The judge didn't buy it, especially when officers testified that his backpack was found leaning up against the side of the house. He was found guilty, at which time he cursed at the judge. Then he inexplicably asked the judge to give him two years for his crime. She sentenced him to 17 months in jail. So you'd think if you got caught committing a crime in such a dangerous, bizarre, and embarrassing way, you'd be done with a life of crime, right? Well, you can call Mr. Chanel many things besides the Santa Claus burglar of Seattle, but you can't call him a quitter. He must have been released from his sentence early because nine months later, in August 2010, he was arrested again. This time, Kirkland police arrived at a home on State Street South at the request of a tenant. He had found a woman standing in the driveway. She was acting nervous and kept looking towards the back of the house. When he asked what she was doing, she asked for directions to the bus stop. The resident then saw a man getting into an unfamiliar vehicle that was backed up to the back of the house. He took off at a high rate of speed, nearly hitting the tenant and the woman as he fled. The woman yelled after the car, Where are you going? and ran off. The tenant then noticed that the homeowner's portable generator was gone. Soon after, the vehicle was spotted and pulled over. Sean Chanel and Arlene Corpus were inside. Chanel was also found with marijuana and driving under a suspended license. Corpus, it was discovered, had been recently released from jail for trafficking stolen property. She also had six previous felony convictions. Chanel was booked for the stolen generator and reckless driving. Apparently, all Chanel learned from being caught for these petty crimes was to move on to bigger crimes. In January of this year, 2017, Chanel was found to be working as a member of the prolific burglary ring, the Rock Smash Burglary Crew. He was arrested, along with crew ringleader Joseph Sims, accused of stealing around $3 million worth of cash, jewelry, and luxury handbags from more than 100 high-end residences in Seattle, Bellevue, Medina, Clyde Hill, and Kirkland. One of the homes they robbed in Clyde Hill belonged to Mariner's pitcher Felix Hernandez. From his home alone, jewelry valued at $1.2 million was taken. Both men were wearing some of the stolen jewelry when they were arrested. 
Chanel was wearing Hernandez's 18-karat gold watch, worth $35,000. Hernandez's nickname, King Felix, was clearly inscribed on the face of the watch. All of the most recent break-ins had occurred around the holidays, four of them on New Year's Eve. It was not mentioned whether his crew was aware of his Santa Claus burglar status before hiring him. Finally, three more quick Santa stories. A man dressed as Santa Claus was arrested for striking a 74-year-old woman in the head with a 2 by 4 in an Atlanta shopping mall in 2004. Elkin Donnie Clark, 49, hit Annie Ruth Nelson with the board, knocking her unconscious. Another woman, Aisha Albritton, intervened, and he threatened her with the board as well. Police were called, and Clark was seen removing the Santa suit in an attempt to avoid arrest. When asked why he had attacked the woman, Clark told the cops that she had stolen 29 boxes of Hershey's chocolates from him, worth $145. No witnesses could confirm his claims. He was charged with two counts of aggravated assault. In Papua New Guinea in 2010, a man arrived at an office party being celebrated by employees of WAMP NGA Holdings. He was wearing a Santa costume and was accompanied by a helper, perhaps his elf, who carried a box they said contained presents. Instead, they pulled out weapons and robbed the place of around 50,000 kina, or $20,000. The company does provide tight security, but because the holiday celebration was in full swing, they believed the men when they explained that they were in costume to deliver presents for the employees, and they were let into the building. Talk about ho-ho holdups. I know, that was horrible, right? I could go on forever with these crazy Santa stories, but I'll end with this one. If you have never experienced a SantaCon, well, you're lucky. What SantaCon, you ask? It's a convention of people dressed like Santa who gather in places all over the world, including New York, Beijing, London, and San Francisco. Hundreds of Santa Clauses show up to a central location and then run around doing various activities, from parades to bar crawls to fun runs or whatever. However, once you get a bunch of people together dressed in these crazy costumes and full of holiday spirit, anything can happen. I used to spend a weekend every holiday season in the city, and what we Northern Californians mean by the city is San Francisco. I like to go and see everything decorated, the big Christmas tree in downtown Union Square, sometimes stay at the Fairmont Hotel, have a great meal in a San Francisco restaurant, and then do some Christmas shopping and really kick off the Christmas season. But almost every year, unbeknownst to me, I would arrive on the weekend of the SantaCon gathering in San Francisco. At first, it just looked funny. All these adults, mostly, in Santa Claus, Mrs. Claus, and elf costumes running around the streets. But it could get pretty drunk and rowdy, too, I noticed. So this next news item came as no surprise to me. One newspaper article called this one of the weirdest instances of Santa-related crime. It happened in 2010 at a mall in Dayton, Ohio, during the city's SantaCon festivities. Apparently, many of the participants were partying North Pole-style, and things started to spin out of control. Revelers became more obnoxious by the hour. Unfortunately, it all unfolded inside the mall, where many families were also in attendance, shopping for holiday gifts and visiting Santa, the real one, not the SantaCon variety. Two intoxicated women were arrested for drunk in public and singing off-color songs. No big deal if they'd been, say, in a pub, but it's kind of frowned upon when they're feet away from little Ralphie, 
who's standing in line to ask St. Nick for a Red Ryder BB gun. Hundreds of Santas were running through the mall making a scene. One mall shopper, Chris Tessie, was quoted as saying, It was right there in the middle of the mall. The kids were scared to death. They're arresting Santa Claus. Cops were everywhere. Santas were running everywhere with their hats. It was one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. Tessie did, however, manage to get a cell phone video of the raunchy carol singing and the arrest of the female clauses. If that sounds like your cup of tea, I'm sure you can find a gathering near you. Just go to santacon.info. As for me, I'll be home watching Elf. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. But I'll be back next week with some more holiday-related true crime stories. I hope you'll join me then. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, at Upon a Crime, and Facebook and Instagram, at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.